Amen. Well, happy Easter again. It's so good to be with you all. Christ is indeed risen. We're going to be in Mark chapters 15 and 16 today, so you can turn there in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there are a few on the uh, little table over there by the door. You're welcome to grab one of those. Keep it if you would like. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we began our journey in the Gospel of Mark on our first Sunday as a church last May, and today we will conclude that journey. We've seen the announcement of the coming kingdom of God, we've seen the identification of Christ as the king, and then we've seen him do every single thing that we would not expect a king to do, most of all to suffer and to die on a cross. And today we are going to see, on the third day, his glorious resurrection. Mark 15, beginning in verse 40. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And it was already evening because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. And when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you may have heard the news back in February that something that appeared to be like a revival of sorts had had broken out on a college campus in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, Asbury University. Uh, There was a a pretty run-of-the-mill, from all reports, chapel service on a Wednesday morning. Uh, From reports, it it wasn't a particularly interesting chapel service. It wasn't a particularly good sermon. Uh, But for whatever reason, after it was over, people just lingered. And they stuck around, and they they began singing again, and they they prayed. Began confessing sin to one another, repenting, and, and, and reconciling relationships. And a few weeks later, that Wednesday morning chapel service finally finished. And... As we would expect in a very polarized society like ours, it was met with very uh, different kinds of responses. Some people were really excited right away. Like some people had been praying for revival and they heard about this and within a few hours of the chapel service beginning, they were already posting on social media that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Asbury University and this revival is happening. 
Other people viewed it as an opportunity for gain, an opportunity to, to, to sort of support their own brand. Uh, so there were reports that, that several prominent worship acts reached out to, uh, to administrators at Asbury and offered their services to come and lead at the revival to which they were told, uh, you're welcome to come and worship with us, but you, you're not going to be on stage. You can come worship like everybody else. Other people still responded with cynicism with what Russell Moore in an article for Christianity Today called a jaded sense of cynicism. These, he said, have seen so much that's fake that it's hard to believe anything so extraordinary could be real. Moore in this article empathizes, and and he says it reminds him of another place where he sensed this cynicism, uh, ironically of all places, at the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. So he, t- he talks about how he, as a seminary professor, would take students over to Israel, and he would teach them in the very places where Jesus taught. And it was always accompanied by, for people by this you know, sense of like the sacred, the divine, like we're in the very places on which Jesus' feet walked, and his disciples were here, and they heard from him. And he said, but then there's the Jordan, where they would often have to wait sometimes for half an hour while some prosperity gospel preacher was dunking busloads of people who had probably paid him to do that for them. He says, of course, one must also enter into the Jordan through the gift shops, where one can buy Jordan River keychains, Christmas ornaments, and genuine Jordan River water. The place seems so market-oriented and desacralized, more writes, that I expect if Jesus were to arrive there now, he might turn over the money changers' tables before seeking out his cousin, John the Baptist. Of course, we don't have to go to the Jordan River or even to Wilmore, Kentucky to find cynicism. We can find it much closer to home. Uh, There's no place in Nashville that I'd rather live than East Nashville. I love living in East Nashville, but it's a very cynical place. It's very cynical about religion. In fact, when, when we were first starting to talk about planting the church, I met with several other pastors in the area, and they all told me, like, listen, whatever you do, like, you can't do anything that gives any sense of inauthenticity because people will snuff that out in a second. If you imply in any way that you want something from people, they will have nothing to do with you. So, like, even the, you know, if you, if you know anything about church planting, it's like, have a block party, wear your T-shirts, you know, pass out swag. And they're like, if you do that, nobody will ever come to your church. They're too cynical for that. Of course, there are different kinds of cynicism. There's kind of cynicism as a worldview that says, like, the only thing that exists is what's in the natural world. So by definition, there can be nothing supernatural or or spiritual. There's a kind of political cynicism that, that basically twists and uses facts to mobilize a cause. But for still other people, and, and this is again quoting Moore, he says, there's a cynicism that is a product not of a fighting spirit, but of a broken heart. This isn't really cynicism in the way we tend to think of it as much as it is a form of self-protection. You can't get hurt, it's assumed, if you don't expect too much. So it's less jaded than it is just numb. It's possible that you're here this morning and that's how you feel about religion, about spiritual things, about Christianity. You've seen so much, so much hypocrisy, so, so much injustice perpetrated in the name of Christianity or religion that you're just numb to it and you you can't get your hopes up to think that there might be something there that's real. I've seen this sort of cynicism lead to a few things in people. One, it can lead people to disconnect from Jesus altogether. Like, it's so bad, all the hypocrisy, all the injustice is so bad that this whole thing must be a sham and it must have always been a sham. So I'm just gonna disconnect from Jesus altogether. 
Others retain some form of a Christian identity but disconnect from the church because like it's organized religion that's that's causing these things, right? It's not Jesus. So I'm still a Christian, but I don't like the church. Other people still, and this may be the most relevant for us in the room, still go through the religious motions. We still go to church. We still maybe even read our Bibles and pray, but but we do so uh, sort of just like mailing it in with no sense of expectancy that like Jesus might actually show up and do something. That he might actually show up and change something in your life or change something in your church or change something in the world. I want to suggest that, that cynicism in whatever form it takes is a way that we look for Jesus among the dead. It's a way that we look for Jesus among the dead. This morning... Mark 15 and 16, we're seeing the first Easter morning. But of course, the text that I read starts a little bit before that. It starts at the cross where Jesus dies. And there's a few of his disciples left watching him, a few women. All the men have bailed at this point. All the, you know, the, the strong, arrogant Peters who were going to die for him, they've all left him. And there's just a few women left, and they watch him die. And then as he, uh, as he does die, Joseph of Arimathea, who we'll talk about in a minute, goes and asks for his body, and, and he buries him in a tomb that was his own. And then we, we fast forward, we skip past the Sabbath, and on Sunday morning, at dawn, the women are walking to the tomb, and they experience what J.R.R. Tolkien called eucatastrophe. Tolkien, in an essay on fairy stories, that's the, the title of the essay, coined the term. And he's talking about how fairy stories have all these commonalities with the true story, the Christian story, the gospel. All these common elements. The reason that they, they're so compelling to our hearts is because they reflect the gospel. And one of those ingredients he calls the consolation of the happy ending. Tragedy, he writes, is the true form of drama, its highest function. But the opposite is true of fairy story. He says, since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe, the sudden joyful turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. It's not essentially escapist. He says, it doesn't deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. In fact, the possibility of these is necessary for the joy of deliverance. What it denies is universal final defeat. And in that sense, it is gospel. It gives a fleeting glimpse of joy, capital J, joy beyond the walls of the world, joy that is as poignant as grief. You've all seen it. You've seen it in a novel. You've seen it in a movie. That moment when just as the night is darkest and it seems that all hope is completely lost, the light just comes bursting through. The women experience this quite literally as they go to the tomb. Dawn comes. And the sun rises not just on the first day of a new week, but on the first day of new creation. On what many ancient Christians called the eighth day of creation. They arrive and the tomb is empty and the angels tell them Jesus is alive. And in Luke's gospel, the angel asks this specific question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. Again, I want to suggest that disconnecting from Jesus, from his people, mailing it in, is one way that we make the same mistake, that we look for Jesus among the dead, as if he were not still living. But Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, everything changes. Everything changes in your life, and everything changes in the world. So this morning, we're going to look for him 
together among the living. First, we do that by looking for Jesus to change us. Look for Jesus to change you. Mark tells us about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who he says boldly asked for Jesus' body. And he includes this tantalizing detail that he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. If you've been following along, you know that the Sanhedrin are Jesus' big enemies in Jerusalem. Like They're the ones that he comes and starts firing shots at. And they're the ones who are chiefly responsible for putting him to death. And now this guy, who's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin is going and and treating Jesus' dead body with respect. Not only that, he's touching his dead body, which would have been unthinkable for a Pharisee to become that unclean by touching a dead body. He's burying him in his own tomb at his own expense. What's going on here? Mark tells us that Joseph was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He was anticipating the kingdom of God, and he recognized it in Christ. And then John's gospel tells us that he was a disciple in secret for a little while. He, he was interested in the teachings of Jesus and the kingdom of God. He was trying to live according to the teachings of Jesus, but he knew that if the other members of the council found out, he would be in big trouble. So he kept it a secret. But Joseph discovered what we all discover at some point, that there is no secret discipleship. At some point, he had to be outed as a follower of Jesus. Joseph was radically changed by Jesus. Enough that not only did he become a secret disciple, but eventually he was willing to exchange all of his worldly power and privilege and prominence to go and grasp, take hold of the body of Christ. This sort of radical change has been happening to people over and over and over again for 2,000 years. The remarkable thing about Joseph's transformation is that it's actually not that remarkable. In church history, this is what keeps on happening. A few of my favorite examples through the centuries. In the late 100s, there was a little girl born in North Africa named Perpetua. She was born into a North African family of nobility and wealth and prominence in society. But as she grew up out of adolescence into young adulthood, she was encountered, she encountered the, the claims of Christ, the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is a time when, when the Roman Empire is very uncomfortable with the exploding new religion called Christianity, so much so that they're intensely persecuting Christians. And so Perpetua knows that that converting to Christianity is a death sentence. She's immediately imprisoned, separated from her young husband and her nursing infant. And while she's in prison, her family is imploring her to recant. All she had to do was say, Jesus is not Lord, Caesar is Lord. She could have kept her fingers crossed. And she would have been released and reunited with her family, but she refused to do it. While she was in prison, she had a vision or a dream of a a ladder coming down out of heaven, and there was a snake at the bottom of it. And on the ladder, there were these weapons attached to it all the way up. And she realized through this dream that, that what was going to happen to her was like Christ, in Christ. She was going to stomp on the head of the serpent, the snake, Satan, and climb up to heaven. But through much suffering, she realized she was going to be martyred. She was going to be killed for her faith, and surely enough, she was. She was thrown into the gladiator ring, like upwards of hundreds of thousands of other Christians that the Roman Empire killed, and she was killed. Why would she do this? Why would she exchange everything, the whole world at her fingertips, to die, to have her life cut short? Because, in her own words, I cannot be called by any other name than what I am. A Christian. 
She had encountered the living Christ, and she could not deny him. A couple hundred years later, another North African family had a little boy. And in this family, the mom was a really devout Christian. She was praying all the time for her son to come to faith. But to her great sadness, he didn't. He had two big problems with Christianity. One was intellectual. There were just all these intellectual claims about Christianity that he just could not like, get down with. He, it just science and philosophy and other things. But the other problem he had with Christianity was its moral demands. Uh, he lived basically a, a life of hedonism. He, he wanted to you know, uh, just, just fulfill every pleasure and every desire that he had. And he, he grows up, he's very bright, he's a great student, and eventually he gets a job uh, teaching rhetoric in Milan. And he moves there, and it suggested to him that he, he might want to go and hear some of the great speakers, the great orators in Milan. So he goes to hear this preacher named Ambrose. And he goes there, and at first he thinks, yeah, this guy's a really interesting preacher. Uh, he's a really good speaker. But over time, you can see where this is leading, what the, the actual content of the preaching starts to work on him. And he becomes friends with Ambrose. He starts to ask him questions. Uh, and eventually, all of his intellectual problems with Christianity just start to melt away. But he still has the moral problems. Like, he's still wanting to live this, you know, just this utterly reckless and sinful life. And so one day, he's with a friend, uh, and, and it's a beautiful day, and they're going for a walk in, in a garden, and his friend stops, and he keeps on going, and he lays down for a moment to rest, and he hears this child's voice saying, tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read, take up and read. And he hears it, and he, he says it almost sounds like a nursery rhyme, like it struck a chord in his heart, like he knew it, but he couldn't place it. And all of a sudden, it occurred to him that maybe this is God telling him to take up the scriptures and read. And so he opens up the nearest Bible, and at random, it lands on Romans 13, 13, and 14, which says, Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. His intellectual problems with the faith have already gone away, and now God confronts him directly about his moral problems. And shortly thereafter, uh, the greatest theologian in church history, St. Augustine, would be baptized on Easter Sunday, 1,626 Easter's ago. Okay, one more. Fast forward about 1,500, 1,600 more years, and we're with another young, bright scholar, uh, and we're in Britain, we're in London. He's a professor at Oxford, and in the last few years, he's moved from being a staunch atheist, there is no God, to being a theist. I believe that there's some sort of God, but he thought that all the major religions of the world throughout world history were basically myths that pointed to the same ultimate truth. But he didn't think that he needed to pick one religion over the other. And so one night he's on a walk with two of his friends, also professors there, and he's, he's making this, they're both Christians, they're trying to convince him to become a Christian, and he's making this case, case that these are all myths, I don't need to pick one. And, and his friend, the aforementioned J.R.R. Tolkien, looks at him and he says, Jack, Christianity is the true myth. It's the true myth. It's the story to which all the other stories point. The reason they're so compelling to you is because they reflect, it sounds kind of like the, the fairy stories, right? Because they reflect and point back to the ultimate and true story that lies under all the other stories. And Jack, or C.S. Lewis as we know him, could not this conversation he had just like wouldn't leave his mind alone. And shortly thereafter, as he told it in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he was going to the zoo to spend a day with his brother. And he said, when I left the house 
for the zoo, I was not a follower of Jesus. And by the time I arrived at the zoo, I was. This isn't something that's just happened historically, though. It's still happening globally. We get this idea in America that the church is shrinking and that Christianity is dying. And people will tell you this. Don't believe it. There can be nothing further from the truth. The, the number of Christians is shrinking among white Western people. It is exploding everywhere else in the world. It's actually very sort of imperialistic to, to imply that Christianity is shrinking around the world. Here's a few statistics there was a big study done by Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, last year, and they have reported that, for example, in the continent of Africa, in the year 2000, there were 380 million Christians. By mid 2022, there were 690 million. That's a growth of 2.8% year over year. In Asia, there were 180 million Christians in 2000 and 390 million in 2022, 1.5% year over year. In Latin America, there were 480 million in 2000, 610 million in 2022. That's 1.1% year over year. Worldwide, there were 2.0 billion Christians in 2000 and 2.6 billion in 2022, which is a growth of about 1.2% year over year. To, to help you like quantify that, imagine that the entire state of Florida is converting to Christ every single year in the world. People are still having their lives transformed by the risen Jesus. It happened in history, it happened globally, and it happened for me. I, I try not to be too autobiographical when I preach because this isn't about me, but I was a, a teenager who... Uh, was angry and lonely and depressed and hurting and was ruining my life with the decisions that I was making, and Jesus met me. Not in a Damascus Road sort of bodily thing, but through his word. In particular, through Philippians 3.8, Paul saying that he counts everything as rubbish, garbage, trash. He actually probably used a cuss word in that sentence. Everything is garbage compared to knowing Christ. And, and God, the Spirit, through that verse, showed me that everything is garbage compared to knowing Christ. He is worth more than every single thing put together. And that changed me. My, my thoughts, my desires, my actions. An encounter with the living Jesus can change you. It can change you for the very first time if you've never met Jesus. It can, he can totally change your life. Just as he was risen, he can raise you to a totally new kind of life. But even if you already know him, he can continue to change your life. If your life is controlled by fear or anxiety or worry, a difficult marriage or difficult singleness, anger or pride or an inability to forgive other people, lack of patience, secret racism, secret porn use, political idolatry, whatever it is, Jesus can change it because he's still alive. <laughs> An encounter with Jesus will change you, both for the first time and daily. By faith, Romans 6 says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. As one church father put it, yesterday I was crucified with Christ, today I am glorified with him. Yesterday I died with him, today I am given life with him. Yesterday I was buried with him, today I rise again with him. Look for Jesus to change you. And second, look for Jesus to change your world, to change social relationships, social structures in our world. Let's talk for a minute about the women 
uh, in Mark 16. It's fascinating that all four gospel writers include the detail that the first people to see the risen Christ were these women. Um, This is actually a really strong proof that the resurrection happened. There are lots of proofs for the resurrection. One of my favorites is is the martyrdom of all the uh, apostles. So all of the original 12 disciples besides Judas were killed by being martyred or died in exile. Why would they do that if they had just made up the resurrection? Like if Jesus, if if they like got together and said, let's pretend that Jesus rose from the dead, why would they go and die for it? Maybe two or three of them if they were crazy, but why would they die for it if it wasn't true? This, This has led Bart Ehrman, who's probably the most popular kind of critical New Testament scholar who's not a Christian, to say that even he thinks that the disciples believed that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus. Now, you tell me, like, what's more likely, that they actually saw him or that they had some sort of group hallucination where they all together thought they saw him and then were willing to die for it? The only way that's more likely is if we just assume that miracles can't happen, right? But historically, it it seems to me far more likely that they really saw him. This is another proof, the fact that the women were the first witnesses. Um, This is a day and a time where the testimony of women was worthless in this culture. It's an incredibly misogynistic culture. Even in Jewish courts and in Roman courts, the testimony of women was not even accepted as valid. They could be an eyewitness to something and their testimony did not matter at all. So if you were making up the resurrection, you would never in a million years say that women were the first people to see Jesus. It it would be like coming up with the worst alibi you could ever come up with. And yet, all four gospel writers include this. Why would they do that? It must be because it was true. Not only is this proof of the resurrection, but it's also another example in the Gospel of Mark of the fact that value is ascribed in the kingdom of God, not according to social standing, but often the exact opposite. We've seen this all throughout Mark, right? Who does Jesus continue to value? Women, children, the poor, lepers, demon-possessed people, Gentiles. Value is ascribed not according to social standing. And not only that, but honor is given, not according to social standing. Here, this great honor of being the first to see the risen Lord is given to these women. Why? Not because they were perceived as as valuable in society, not because they were perceived as useful, but because of their great devotion to Christ. These women were the last ones at the cross, and they were the first ones at the tomb. All the other disciples had left. By Sunday morning, they're cowering in fear, hiding. And the women are the first to go, and they're given the honor of seeing Christ first. This turning of human value systems on its head has again continued in in church history. One of the ways that we see that now is there's an increasing number of of non-religious scholars who are arguing that the concept of human rights is an inherently Christian idea. That, that we wouldn't get this from anywhere else. So, for example, Yuval Harari, who's a, a popular atheist writer, says that human rights is a Christian myth. He says if you just appeal to the natural world, there is no validation for anything like some concept of human rights. And historically, it only comes from Christianity. Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, but a, a scholar and author, he wrote a book called Dominion about history of the church. He's also an atheist. He's not a Christian. But he says that just as, this is, this is funny to me. I don't know if anybody else will find this funny. So just as some Christians might refuse to consider that they might be descended from an ape, 
So now are many in the West reluctant to contemplate that their values might be traceable back to Christian origins. He says, the idea that every human being possesses an equal dignity has not historically been remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or other factors is to depend on large numbers of people sharing in common an assumption that everyone possesses inherent worth. But the origins of this principle, he says, lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. And we see this, again, historically. For example, Gregory of Nyssa, he was a theologian in the 300s, wrote what historians, as best they can tell, is the first anti-slavery tract in human history. While slavery was accepted across the whole entire world, this guy, this Christian, in the 300s, writes this tract against it. And he says, basically, that, that the idea of slavery is completely incompatible with a God who is a creator and people who are created in his image. The first example we have of anything like this. Around the same time, Christians are inventing the concept of a hospital, like the early church is saying, we should have some sort of place where like sick and hurt people can go and we can take care of them. We fast forward to our own day. We see it in charitable giving, adoption, foster care. Christians outpace other Americans by far in all of these categories. Why? Because if Jesus is alive, the way that we treat people and whom we value radically changes. And this is so relevant for our day, isn't it? Conversations about the unborn, immigrants, widows and orphans, racial and ethnic minorities, people with mental and physical disabilities, the poor. If Christianity is true and Jesus is alive, the way we treat people radically changes. It happens first here. It happens first in the church, but then it spills out over into the world. And I know that, that the cynicism that I talked about at the beginning is probably creeping back up in the back of your mind. Like, Can we really expect to see a day where, where people are valued no matter what across America or across the world. I share your cynicism, but like, it's already happened. Again, the concept of human rights was started with a couple hundred Christ followers in the first century, and now it's everywhere in the West. So why can't it happen again if Jesus is alive? Look for Jesus to change you. Look for Jesus to change our world. Third, be the reason that someone looking for Jesus finds him. Fleming Rutledge is an uh, Episcopalian author and uh, priest, and she wrote a, a really an authoritative book on the crucifixion of Jesus, and she's made the claim, and other people agree with it, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you and I would have never heard of him. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you and I would have never heard of him. Why? Because by its very nature, Roman crucifixion was designed intentionally and meticulously to erase the humanity of the person on the cross. It was a public display to everyone watching. That thing on the cross is not a man or a woman. It is a maggot. It has no rights, no value, no worth, no dignity. It was intentionally designed to wipe the memory of this person's name from the face of the earth. And historically, it did that. Because despite the fact that Rome crucified thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people before Christ, history has no record of a single person's name who was crucified until Jesus. We would not have ever heard the name Jesus if he did not rise from the dead, but he did. So the question for us then is, what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with it? 
this has already been a long sermon, and you're about to roll your eyes because I have to get into something kind of technical and theological here in the last few minutes. There's this awkward ending of Mark situation. Uh, you may have noticed that I stopped reading after verse 8. What's going on here? If you look in your Bibles at the end of verse 8, they probably say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. Um, this is an example of basically in the, in the field of what academics call historical criticism. So we don't have any of the original letters that any of the authors of Scripture wrote. We, this isn't, we don't have like Mark's handwriting and his signature at the end. What we have are copies. We have a great number of copies. The Bible has more copies and better copies than any other book in ancient history. Uh, they pop up in different parts of the world, and they agree with one another like 99%. But the 1% that, that differ are what we call textual variants. Uh, basically, you know, they have these, these small differences. Unfortunately for us, there's no theological issue that is affected at all by any textual variant. But this is the biggest one. Like these last 12 verses in Mark, uh, at, at some point they were accepted as part of Mark, but, but scholars now basically universally agree that they were not original to Mark, that Mark did not write them. They were added later by some scribe. Now the question that should rise is, why would some scribe, when he's copying the Gospel of Mark, add this ending, verses 9 through 20? I think the reason is because look how Mark ends verse 8. They left, and the Greek uses a double negative. They said nothing to no one because they were terrified. The end. <laughs> one, that seems like a pretty terrible ending. And two, we just know historically like it's not, that's not how the story ended, right? So what is Mark doing? I think what Mark is doing is using a rhetorical device to forcefully pose the question, will you accept the invitation of Jesus? We've seen all throughout Mark that Mark's gospel is an invitation into discipleship. It's an invitation to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what he's asking with this truncated ending is, will you, one, accept his invitation now that you know that he's risen? And two, will you go extend it to others? What will you do with this news about the resurrection? Will you be a disciple and will you make disciples or will you go away and tell nobody nothing? In his classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky introduces late in the book this character named Kolya. Kolya is a, a sort of precocious young preteen uh, who, who grew up too soon. He has all the answers to everything. He's very well-read for somebody his age. He's very taken by the sort of popular philosophies in the day, so he lets everybody know he's a socialist and he's an atheist. He's like 12 years old, okay? Uh, but at the end of the book, he suffers the death of a friend. And he walks through this with this other character alongside him, really the hero of the book, Alyosha, who's in his early 20s. He's kind of the, the paragon of hope and virtue and faith. And walking through this suffering with Alyosha at his side changes Kolya. And at the end, on the last page of the novel, they're standing at the, the graveside of his friend. I'll just read it to you. Karamazov, cried Kolya, can it really be true, as religion says, that we shall all rise from the dead and come to life and see one another again. Certainly we shall rise, certainly we shall see and gladly, joyfully tell one another all that has been, Alyosha replied, half laughing, half in ecstasy. Ah, how good that will be, burst from Kolya. Alyosha helps free Kolya from his cynicism 
and embrace the hope of the resurrection. One, I hope, I hope that can happen to you. Like I hope, I hope maybe it's as, as pensive as he's asking it, like, can it can it really be true? Can it really be true that Christ rose from the dead? Can it really be true that we're gonna rise and see one another again? Certainly. So I hope that, that this gospel news can not only melt your cynicism, but I hope that you can be an Alyosha for somebody else, right? That you can, you can walk through something with somebody and create the kind of space and, and hospitality for them to ask you, can it really be true? Can, can the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection with him really be true? You can be that for somebody. Better yet, you can be the women who first carried the gospel back. They didn't finally go away and say nothing to no one. They went back and told the disciples just as Jesus told them to do. And we can be like the disciples who gave their lives taking this message around the world. Augustine wrote, he died, but he vanquished death. In himself, he put an end to what we feared. He took it upon himself and he vanquished it. Be of good heart. Death will die in us also. What has taken place in Christ, our head, will take place in his body. Death will die in us also. But when? At the end of the world. At the resurrection of the dead in which we believe and concerning which we do not doubt. Friends, we have this good news. What will we do with it?